Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, I want to welcome Alan Greenfield. He was a world traveler and teen ufologist by age 16 and has done numerous field investigations of UFO and paranormal phenomena. He was founder of the longest-running UFO annual convention, the National UFO Conference, and was twice honored with their Ufologist of the Year Award. He has also been an active occultist since the 1960s and was featured also on the Hellier 2 TV series recently and experienced many synchronicities related to this, as reportedly have many others. He has written a number of books and monographs, including the current best-selling The Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, which explains how to correctly understand UFO, cryptid, paranormal, mystical, and magical events as different aspects of one phenomena. Alan, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Uh, considering that we're in the middle of a pandemic and uh, whatever else is going on, riots in the street, I'm doing just fine. But I'm at home, you know. So. Well, yeah, that's good. Considering everything, I'm doing pretty good myself. Well, uh, before we get too far, I do want to thank uh, C60 Purple Power, our sponsor. I've been taking C60 for almost a month. I really feel amazing. I have increased energy. I have so much better sleep, less aches and pains. I feel great. Uh, C60 is it may be the most powerful antioxidant yet known. Not only can it help maximize the efficiency of cells in producing energy, but it may also provide cellular protection against many toxic environmental factors. It also helps reduce inflammation in the body by neutralizing oxidative radicals. Take back control of your health and begin your C60 Purple Power journey today. Visit c60purplepower.com power.com slash knowledge 10 to receive 10% off your order plus free shipping or just click the link in the description. 
Now, Alan, I have been looking forward to tonight. Uh, I want to pick your brain. You're one of the, my favorite kind of researchers, one that can connect UFOs with the paranormal, occult, cryptids, and even magical events. Uh, tonight, I can't wait to get into it uh, regarding these connections. I want to see how deep we can get. First, I want to start with how you got involved with the occult studies and ufology. I know it was at a young age, right? Uh, very young, yeah. Uh, as an active thing, I got involved uh, in the early 1960s, and it was a combination of things. Uh, one is I saw what at the time I thought was a UFO. Uh, I now do not believe that it was. I believe it was too uh, two high-flying jets, uh, but that doesn't matter. It happens synchronistically, a big part of my work now, that I had just read the first article I had ever read about UFO organizations, in this case, NICAP in, in 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C., as it was then. And uh, so I sent them a report. And they said, oh, that's good. Join us and send your $10 in or whatever it was back then. Uh, more money than <laughs> would be now. So I, uh, I joined NICAP. Same year, I... Uh, I don't remember whether they reached out to me or I reached out to them, but I joined the Mystic Arts Book Society, which was an eclectic uh, thing. They, under the label University Books, anything that wasn't esoteric, they published. So I got an education in esoterica of all sorts, uh, from A.E. Waite to Aleister Crowley all the way back uh, uh, to the early 1960s. Uh, the other areas, I don't know where the interest came from. Uh, I, I cut my teeth on stories, local stories of ghosts and goblins and other nefarious creatures. And uh, in the end, I would say that it, it's those coincidings of events or synchronicities, I think, is a probably more accurate thing that got me interested. But at that time, if you had asked me what my opinions were, they would have been much more conventional than the radical views that I hold now and that have, I have held for the last you know, 30 years. And when did you get involved with Organized Magic and uh, the OTO? I was involved with the OTO? Oh, no, those people are... Nuts. <laughs> uh, that was a lot later. What I did, what, but prior to getting involved with it, and the, I can see your questions are going to be right to the point. Okay. <laughs> fearless, fearless fellow. Okay. Uh, basically, the woman I was then married to joined the, uh, the, Caliphate or corporate, as I prefer to call it, OTO. And I got uh, asked to organize their local uh, Ecclesia Gnostica group. I don't know why. Maybe she just recommended me because I had had a lot of ex experience organizing UFO conventions and uh, science fiction conventions and other things that uh, were along those lines. So I was asked and I remember saying to the then camp master, I said, look, you probably have one kind of agenda and I have another, but as long as you understand that, I'm willing to work with you. From that, 
somewhere along the line, I got uh, made an ecclesiastical member of the OTO, even though I wasn't a member of the OTO. So somewhere around 1984, 83, somewhere in there, uh, I thought, well, they don't have to do this. They actually have an affiliate program, so maybe I should join as an initiate member. My previous experience with initiation consisted of the Benebrith Youth Organization, which isn't very big on ritual and certainly isn't an occult organization, although the uh, Masonic descent is there, uh, descent from. And uh, in fact, they used to have rituals in the 19th century, but they grew up. Uh, and uh, um, other than that, the Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout and I was senior patrol leader of uh, my, uh, my Boy Scout troop. So uh, that was it. And they asked me, you know, what other occult organizations are you in? I said, well, there's uh, AZA. What's that? Olive Sedek Olive, it's the kids in the Jewish community center. And what else? Uh, the BSA. BSA? Is that like Borderland Sciences? No, but if you sing a few bars, I'll be glad to help you out. Okay, that's the Boy Scouts of America. Up till now, I have never joined anything of this sort. So here I am. And Very good. Being the... Uh, 20-year involvement, which taught me a lot of negative lessons, but very little positive. Wow, that's, uh, that's understandable from, you know, uh, some of the things I've heard uh, from people who have been involved with the organizations. Um, now, so many researchers uh, like to put these categories in different boxes, ufology. If they're, if they're ufologists, they're sticking to nuts and bolts UFOs. These craft are coming from across different galaxies to visit us. Or if you're into the occult, that these are, you know, angelic beings. But very few can piece these together. When did you start connecting the profound connections between ufology and the occult and magic? Well, it started with a question, and it was fairly early on, because I think if someone had asked me in 1963 when I was getting involved in the what was then called the teen ufology movement, uh, I would have said, oh, yeah, there's ships coming from Mars. Uh, that's That was conventional wisdom back then. Then it moved out to the stars as Mars became sort of, you know, just uh, not, not quite... Uh, uh, plausible, except to people who keep seeing, you know, critters on the surface of Mars. And maybe there are, I don't know, but I, I doubt that there are sophisticated civilizations there. We do not have a John Carter of Mars scenario. Uh, anyway, I asked myself a question that I don't think anyone at that time had asked. And it was just to myself. I didn't say it to anybody else at that point. But somewhere in the mid-1960s, I began to do uh, radio programs on uh, Ted Turner's first station, uh, WCNN, WTLK, and the local rock and roll station, WQXI, they had a talk show. So, you know, it went all the way back. And they would ask me, you know, why do you think that they are spaceships from another planet? And I would give some kind of answer, I guess, uh, you know, well, uh, the, the, we're doing space probes now with our stolen German V2 rockets, so why not uh, go that way? But uh, 
Uh, a shadow person just passed behind you, by the way, but don't worry about it. Uh, what? Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, I didn't really have a good reason to think that they were from space. And I looked around me and everybody else that was involved in ufology, that was the default position. Either they were secret weapons or misidentified uh, natural phenomena, or they were spaceships from another world who came to visit us with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men, as they used to say on the original Superman series. Um, no, the, the, the riddle that I came up with was, why on earth in 1947, when the Kenneth Arnold case and the so-called Roswell case and the much more interesting and coinciding uh, uh, case in Portland um, involving uh, uh, an object that mm, dropped materials and uh, uh, otherwise uh, killed a dog, might have killed the man if it hit him, and... Uh, the two Air Force officers, the Air Force was then a new institution apart from the Army Air Force. Uh, they came and interviewed uh, these guys and went on their flight back home. They had a wreck and were killed, thus being the Air Force's first casualties. So seems like a strange coincidence. But nothing was said other than Oh, little green men, flying saucers from outer space, blah, 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 blah. Oh, but other people would say, oh, contraire. They are, in fact, uh, something that the government is generating to conceal their, I'm sure you've heard this one, to conceal their secret programs of, you know, developing the flying wing or whatever was current in the late 1940s. Or it's war nerves. Uh, people are just getting over World War II. I actually had an experience as a three or four-year-old child where I was, uh, there was no uh, pandemic at the time. So I was waiting in the Atlantic Ocean and we saw a contrail, not a chemtrail, a contrail going straight up in, in, in the sky. And I thought, Hmm, that's one of the new jets. And I heard a child further down the beach going, there goes a soul ascending into heaven. I should have gotten the point right there in 1950 or 49 or whatever year it was. My family went every year. But uh, uh, much later it occurred to me, there is a really big dis disjointed leap because all UFOs are either seen on the earth or near the Earth. All UFO communications are on the Earth or near the Earth. The only exceptions are stories by contactees and later abductees who sometimes claim to have gone elsewhere, although they really don't know. They're not astronauts or cosmonauts. They don't have uh, the ability to know. And they're usually inside a structure and usually. Uh, uh, having to sing on, oh, where am I? And any answers they might have gotten from the alien beings would have been uh, 
you know, debatable because if you've been abducted by someone and they say, oh, you're in St. Louis in a hotel, you're probably not in St. Louis and probably not in a hotel unless they're planning to kill you. And most abductees are returned eventually. So why in 1947 would there be this leap to, well, we don't know what they are, so they must be from other planets. And I started to question that, and I uh, groped my way without any good theoretical basis at that time to the notion that maybe they're from here in some sense, from another dimensional plane or, you know, the, the, the terminology is very unscientific. But as it turns out, in the wonderful world of theoretical physics, they were beginning to develop the notion of uh, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And if that interpretation or some variant of it uh, is correct, then where you sit right now and where I sit right now, we are this close to other dimensions. It's just a question of because they are, even the word dimensions, they prefer the term brains, but it, you have to spell it B-R-A-N-E-S. It's not the thing in here. It's uh, other universes, but they're, um, they may have entirely different laws of physics or no laws of physics as we understand the term. And sometimes there is a glitch in the matrix and we see apparitions, whichever phenomena you want to go to, or we have a telepathic experience or this or that, whatever. But when I tried that out on the ufologists, they said, oh, no, we don't want to get involved in it and that kind of stuff. So I tried it out on the occultists. I mean, I'm condensing in time here from the 1960s to the late 1980s. But each one of these areas had this turf sensibility, a uh, kind of um, tribalism. And what I was saying was, why are these things not being connected? They seem to have been around, A, before there was any uh, government. They've been around since people have been around, if you judge from you know cave paintings and the most ancient stories that we have. So there have been goblins and and fairy stories. And actually, at that time, the only person in ufology that was willing to entertain that was Jacques Vallée. Um, and uh, I thought he did a, a very good job. But, you know, I, I didn't take my inspiration from him. I started publishing a thing called Alternate Horizons Newsletter, which is pretty much what the name sounds like. And I started to try to persuade people to look in these other areas. Well, I might as well have gone from one biker gang to another and say, hey, why don't you guys get together and we'll have a love fest. And then after both of them beat the hell out of me, I would go, hmm, maybe I ought to take a different approach. Um, I remember one time the U.S. Grandmaster of the OTO, I was at his home and we were alone at the time, and I said, look, um, this is very much like paranormal phenomena, what we're, what we're generating or pro pro uh, profess to be generating that we call magic or initiation or whatever. So why don't we use the same methods that are used in parapsychology? I spent a year or so in the, uh, as an elected member of the Society for Psychical Research, so I, I knew the, you know, the routines, and I've kept up with that. And I'm 
very big into the notion of repeatable tests and also verification uh, and also try to avoid people who are cheating, whatever. I went on for about an hour, as I'm doing right now, uh, to, the, to the supreme and most holy king of the United States, to which I said, I thought we had a revolution here, you know, no kings. You don't understand, it's spiritual. Uh, okay, so I went on and I was really good. I was in, you know, really, I was in the zone. And he listens politely as he is prone to do, old Dave. And nothing. He says, that's very interesting. And I thought, you'll do nothing with this. There aren't going to be any tests before the initiation and after the initiation and a year later follow-up. It isn't going to happen because these people are not interested in that. And then when I published the um, first book that linked the occult to UFOs, uh, an early, early, early version of the complete secret cipher, the Euphonauts, which is thanks to the hell your people, I think, selling off the shelves, right? Well, you can't even say that anymore. It's selling off of the Amazon and the Barnes and Noble and the other non-brick-and-mortar places. I don't know how it's doing in whatever bookstores are left after the, uh, after the pandemic. Maybe none, sadly. Yes, uh, I, I've come across this term from a few of my researchers' friends and some things that I've come across, the super spectrum. I think that's a great way to describe the world beyond our vision, um, you know, just beyond the spectrum of our vision. And he also calls uh, these beings ultra-terrestrials, which is another interesting term I like. Would you think it's, it's fair to say that these entities are essentially the same thing as angels or, or other etheric beings? Well, I don't claim to know, but I, I, I think that that's, they, they follow the same kind of pattern. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. They approach their relationship with us is very similar, maybe even the same. How we apprehended it, think about it for a minute. We, um, in terms of biological time, we've been here for about, oh, 15 minutes. And we have these five senses that are basically meant to allow us to, to find food, to uh, uh, kill the prey, but not be killed by the predator, to reproduce, and that's it. That's what eyes and ears, and you know, that's what we're we're able to see with our own, uh, able to 
uh, what's the term, to cognitively resolve in a way that is satisfactory to us. And that's just ill-equipped. I mean, astronauts have problems with just, you know, going a couple of hundred miles up in space, not to trivialize that, but they say people are changed by that. Um, and I, I don't dispute that at all. If we're dealing with something that has physical rules that are totally different from what we understand and what we've evolved in the two minutes that we've been here, uh, to say nothing of, of, of uh, the time the planet has been here, to say nothing of the time the universe has been here, um, we're just, we're newcomers here. And the notion that we can label these things in anything other than a, a good mythos that we can work with is probably a mistake. So I don't have uh, a term, but ultra-terrestrial will do as long as you understand that that's a provisional term too. And by the way, the term comes from my old buddy, the late John Keel. He, uh, well, we sure, were, yes. I wouldn't call him a buddy. Uh, Gray Barker was a buddy. Uh, John Keel was a strange dude. Or as Jerome Clark once put it, uh, I don't think he would mind my quoting. If anybody in this field is one of them, it's Keel. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, possibly or, so. He went back to his uh, home dimension, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to visit my home dimension someday. Well, now, from, um, from Crowley to John D., um, to many other occultists throughout history that have made a form of contact, it seems um, a recurring theme is uh, the conveyance of a, a sort of coded language. Uh, is this something that you've come across in your uh, theory, in your research? I certainly hope so, because that's like the, the linchpin, the pillar of, of, of my point of view. Uh, I'll tell you the story of the secret cipher of the euphonauts. I guess that's a plug, but it's actually, I don't know what else to call it. it <clears throat> there was this little group of occultists in England um, uh, that published a magazine called The New Equinox. Jim Lees was kind of the, uh, the closest thing to a guru that they had on uh, well, I was going to say Crowley's book, The Book of the Law, Liber Albel Legis, but Crowley did not claim it was his book. He claimed it was dictated to him by a praetor human intelligence named Iwas. That is as it may be. I don't know why he talked in King James Biblicalese if he was a praetor human intelligence from another uh, plane of existence, but be that as it may. There are indications in Liberal that there is a cipher that Crowley would never be able to crack. In fact, he attempted to over and over and over and did not happen. So um, Jim Lees went on this magical retreat in the, I guess it was the mid-1970s, I may be uh, doing that wrong, came back to his group and he said, uh, I have cracked the cipher. There's a page in Liber Al that 
someone, uh, perhaps Crowley, perhaps Crowley's first wife, perhaps someone else, had drawn a grid over and tried to decipher the page where it says, this is where you'll find the cipher. It's, I'm reducing that and the, the hardcore Crowleyites will go, ah, Greenfield, that's so typical of him. Um, but I don't care that, you know, I, I think the Lieber all should be subjected to the same sort of thing that biblical criticism, higher criticism does. It's, it's appropriate to take a closer look uh, at anything that claims to be divine or sort of divine or whatever, not because it might not be, but because it might be. And the only way to find out is to, you know, uh, pl um, play with it, uh, work with it, whatever. Lees comes back with this, uh, what became known as the Azure Lidded Woman Cipher, which then was picked up in America by the late uh, William Wallace Webb, who I became aware of just when the World Wide Web was coming around. So it was like www does www, but uh, he was the head of a little group called the QBLH, the uh, Kabbalistic Alchemist Church, although he was the least churchy person I've ever met. Um, and uh, he promoted the same cipher, but it was always done with occult matters. In other words, a lot, there are a lot of things called barbarous names in occultism. And you could decipher these, or you could decipher secondary meanings in, in Liber Al using it. And um, one of uh, Webb's American followers was uh, this early computer genius uh, named Tim Coutte. Uh, a uh, complicated person, eventually committed suicide. I always say too good for this world, uh, really. Uh, or this world wasn't, you know, up to maintaining a person of that kind of vision. Um, but Coutte presented this cipher to me as something to use with occultism. Well, by that time, this is late 1980s, I had been wrestling already with, do I really want to be part of an organization that has a crypto-fascist edge, or do I not want to be part of it? Well, I went on for another 15 years, so obviously it either has cultic attraction or I'm just lazy, whatever, but uh, maybe some of both, and maybe they count on that. But uh, um, as I rose through the ranks there, I... Um, uh, I thought, well, this is nice. It really does decode a lot of the occult terms that are obscure. So what? I'm sort of disillusioned. And as I'm being presented with this computer program called Lexicon, which uh, my publisher, not coincidentally, has, has sort of revived, I had to tell all of the non-technical details of how the program worked, because I had clueless on you know I, I turn the machine on and if it doesn't go on I look at the plug and if it's plugged in that's as much as my knowledge is going to do I can sit here and pontificate but I know nothing about the structure of what's allowing us to communicate in this way and in truth I don't much care <laughs> you know it's uh, it's what is and um, uh, in any case 
I used it for a few occult terms and it worked very well because this program lexicon was fabulous. It had been designed on a mainframe computer back when mainframes were really the only way to do anything really complex. Uh, I don't know what language it was originally in, but probably something like COBOL, one of those uh, almost lost computer languages that were used by the government mostly. And uh, I thought, well, this works, but do I really want to devote a lot of time to decoding occultism when I'm wrestling with whether I should, you know, walk away from that particular aspect of things or become an independent critic as I naively thought I could without getting kicked out or wrong. Um, so for lack of anything else to do, having this program and the guy who was a genius saying, try it, keep trying it. You'll really, this is really something Jim Lee's Carol Smith, the people in England, blah, blah, blah. Bill Webb says it's great. Blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, why don't I try applying this to some of the other fields that I'm interested in? For example, in many, uh, especially earlier UFO-related uh, close encounter cases, either there was a term given to the uh, percipient, to use Keel's term, or a planetary name that was nonsensical, even silly, or if it was a trans-channeled thing, you would have, you know, Maharaja Nacha is literally one of the, one of the names. Why don't I apply this to the, what I call the silly names uh, that have shown up in UFO lore instead of to just occult lore and see if it produces anything? And I tried it. I don't remember what particular word. I think it was orthon, uh, because orthon has some of the um, some of the values I'm interested in in terms of being uh, a contactee claim that nevertheless sounds very much like uh, mythology. And I take mythology in the uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Carl Jung sense as being not uh, not the equivalent of fraud or, or superstition, but as being sort of an inner truth. So I tried it on Orthon, and it yielded the same value as the name Jesus. And I thought, well, Orthon, in the, the way Jesus is depicted in Western lore, is this blonde, blue-eyed, uh, you know, you're familiar with the old pictures. I don't think they're as popular now because they're they're absurd uh, for a Jewish gentleman living in Galilee in the, the circa 30 CE. That's just not uh, 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 not acceptable anymore. But it was then, and uh, um, that's the way Orthon was depicted. And not only that, but the guy depicting it was George Adamski, who I knew from my friend Jim Mosley, was uh, privately a very anti-Semitic person, who was uh, his, one of his primary witnesses was George Hunt Williamson, who had been part of, of a group of people prior, just prior to World War II, uh, associated with uh, William Dudley uh, Pelly, who was 
uh, the head of the Silver Shirts, a neo-Nazi group uh, in, uh, in the United States. Uh, Pelly was in fact imprisoned after World War II broke out here. So I thought, well, so they see a blonde, blue-eyed alien and it has the same uh, numerical equivalence in this code that was written 60 years before uh, of Jesus. What are they trying to suggest? That, uh, that this is the Aryan Jesus? I mean, uh, the point is, I got it, that this, this uh, cipher or code what, had far wider applications. And the more I tried, the more I was convinced. In fact, I reached a point where I thought, well, if I publish a book about this, probably the cipher will be changed by whoever has generated it, whether it's a being called Iwas or, or Fred Schmutz from, from New Jersey. I, whoever generated it, once it's exposed, it's going to change. But uh, it needs to be out there because people need to test this. And I think you can use it if, if there's a particular close encounter case where a word for a planet or word for a name like Indrid Cold, which figures prominently in the Hellier, uh, excellent uh, field work, um, then you can probably predict when the next big event will happen by decoding that name, because the name is probably not the personal name of that uh, entity or whatever it may be. It's meant to get in the media so that the message, it's a perfect coding system, the message goes without any direct contact to whoever or whatever it's supposed to go to. And if you intercept that, you will know where uh, the next time there's going to be a really important uh, UFO-related event is going to be such and such. So I... Uh, came out with the first version of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts uh, and wrote uh, the sequel at the same time. I went down to my hometown, which is out in uh, the, Savannah, the central Savannah River area, right across from the, where they were making the uh, triggers for the nuclear bombs, as they would say there. And uh, uh, a lot of UFO sightings around there, uh, which is... Interesting. In fact, I have a person monitoring that right now because it's always going on in that area. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, secret weapons. I think it has to do with interest in what used to be done there. Um, so I wrote a sequel called Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And I, um, uh, my publisher at that time, uh, Illuminate Press, which fell apart under very mysterious circumstances. They bought the second book, and then I went to visit the um, the grandmaster of the uh, corporate OTO at his home, which was then in North Carolina. I mean, I'm not trying, he's a very paranoid person, and I don't want to out him or anything, but uh, he's not there anymore, so don't go looking for him in uh, North Carolina. But anyway, uh, he hit me up with something totally unexpected. I knew that the organization was 
I was like, this goes back a ways, the fair-haired boy. You know, I was considered to be, as he put it, potentially the historian of the movement uh, because because I could write, which most people in that organization, you know, putting three words together is they're very stilted and whatever. There, there are a couple of exceptions, but only a couple. Um, so out of the blue, this is right after uh, uh, the original Luminate Press edition of Secret Cipher came out. He launches into this, we're alone together, this uh, long tirade, not raised voice or anything, but basically saying, you know, you could have gone a long way in the OTO if you'd stayed away from this UFO stuff because the occult is far more respectable than UFOs. I didn't know that A, respectability is what it's all about. I thought truth was what it was all about. And B, where have you been? On what planetary system do you think that the occult is more respectable than ufology? Because it just isn't true. But he was the, you know, he was the boss, the, uh, the high guru. So I talked him into coming back to Atlanta with me. This is after I had, you know, I was somewhat in the upper middle echelon of the OTO, and uh, I wanted him to initiate a friend of mine who had been neglected by others. So he drove me back to Atlanta. When we were passing Tallulah Gorge, which is a legendary place, uh, it's where the movie... Uh, the Deliverance. Yeah, that's where it was filmed. It's supposed to be on the Wild Catoosa. Instead, it's in Tallulah Gorge. But Tallulah Gorge is a place where the little people are supposed to live. And uh, my uh, erstwhile friend Terry said that, that was a, there was an entrance to Otherware there, which seemed to dovetail with the Indian story. So I've looked for that with no success and not sure I would go in if I found it. So uh, because uh, the experiences I've heard are... Uh, pretty ghastly, really. Um, anyway, we get, we're passing Tallulah Gorge where the road gets narrow, and I'm with this guy, and he's playing a demo tape with the band Psychic TV uh, that, he, that he jammed with sometimes. And, he's t and Psychic TV is not exactly the respectable group. It was affiliated with one of the... Uh, more nefarious magical organizations and was a pretty, pretty bizarre uh, situation itself. But then he starts again. I'm a captive audience. And he says, you know, you were considered for a Grand Lodge office, but we had to pass you up because you did that UFO book. And I said, well, there's a sequel. And he said, Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You shouldn't publish any more of this. And I thought, yeah, I should publish a volume on the censorship from... from <laughs> from the boss of the OTO. But instead I said uh, something to the effect of, are you telling me as the grand commander of the order that I am pledged to not to publish the second book? Click, I turned on the tape recorder. He said, no, I am not, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he backed off a little bit there. But for the next 10 years, 10 years, uh, I bought back the rights to the second book. I a couple of times wanted to publish it, but at that time I wanted to get ahead in the OTO. So I wanted to play ball with the OTO game and they, and from the highest source they have in the material universe uh, was told, don't do that or you will not advance, uh, so to speak. And I did advance didn't publish the book until I hadn't quite quit my jobs in the OTO, but I was up there and was a dues-exempt member, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I was done with it. I was done with it long before I quit because they made me a sheriff that's Sovereign Grand Inspector General, and it happened that one of our local members had a uh, – she was Delta Security right after 9-11, so – she had this pass uh, for Delta flights. So I uh, flew all over the country and inspected all these various lodges and decided this is not something I have wasted these 15 years. I'm not going to waste any more on this. I'm going to resign from my positions, talk to the people in charge in person and quit. It didn't go that smoothly, but that's where my head was at at that point. Um, um, I kind of forced them to throw me out after I had quit all my jobs. And then they accused me of abandoning ship. I said, well, if I abandoned ship, I don't know. It was like uh, I gave you a year's advance notice that I was resigning from all these positions. You had plenty of time to replace me if you had anybody who was, shall we say, more compliant than me. So the second book came out. But in the meantime, several of the authors for this, in the same stable that I was in, among them Jim Keith, friend of mine, um, uh, and the publisher of, of uh, Illuminate Press, Ron Bonds, who I had known back to the BBS days, uh, died under mysterious circumstances. Uh, uh, Carrie Thornley, a friend of mine, uh, um, I got a great interview with him at that is now apparently a book. Somebody turned it into a book, and it's online if anybody's curious about it. But uh, um, they all died relatively young and under really screwy circumstances. The screwiest of all was Ron Bonds because he supposedly died of food poisoning that he'd gotten at a local restaurant. But he was dead by morning, and I've consulted in number of people who said that, that does, food poisoning does do that it was and she's still alive and uh, 
as far as I know, and uh, and other people in the restaurant. Nobody reported reportedly was sick. He was poisoned, and I don't know with what. I don't know uh, why exactly, but it ended Illuminate Press because he was the fulcrum from which all of these. Uh, people were, uh, they were a very responsible press, old, one of the old school presses that, you know, did uh, contracts and uh, gave you 10% and gave you review copies to give to your friends or and or, you know, the hosts of radio programs so they could read it and sound, uh, that doesn't much exist anymore except for the, you know, except for Stephen King, that's, that's gone with the wind, which is right. gone with the wind. <laughs> now, when it comes to these magical orders and some of these secret society, especially when we're talking about higher level ranking members, how much would you say do they really understand about the nature of reality and these, you know, occult phenomenon and ufology? And also, how much power and control do they really have over society? We all hear these theories and, and, you know, that they actually control the world and they control the banks and they control everything in some of these higher orders of, of secret societies. What are your thoughts on that? There was a book some years ago called Blood on the Altar uh, by a guy who has since become a friend of mine and done much better books. But he postulated in this book, which he said was heavily edited, when I wrote him and said, essentially, look, you see in these orders some kind of grand conspiracy. The truth is, I know people in the OTO up to the highest level that there is and down to the lowest level. There's no correspondence. between. There are people who are coming in at the... Minerva or first degree level and people who are in the exalted, you know, ninth degree and 12th degree and other things that they uh, uh, sort of make up as they go along, I think. Um, and there's no correspondence between the level of their initiation and the level of their actual initiation. There are dumb people at the top, dumber than posts. There are a few people who are competent in the day-to-day -day world, although most of them are marginalized people in society, which is interesting in and of itself, degree-hungry people. And there are people at the bottom who come in looking for the great, you know, the, the great conspiracy or the great knowledge or whichever, you know, whichever side of it they, they think that they're on, um, that know far more than the people in the upper reaches of this organization. I have the same issue with people who think that uh, UFOs are a government conspiracy and they know everything. And I always say, and I don't mean this in any kind of egotistical way, because it would apply to anybody who's been at this for a long time. I probably know more about UFOs than the government does, period. It's just Project Blue Book was like, two guys in the office and a secretary. I mean, I'm not trying to trivialize it. That's literally what it was. And they'd, they'd sign, sign the, uh, the work out to, uh, you know, to field, competent field investigators, but it was them making the decisions, and they didn't know, not a single one of them, what they were, what they were about. They were chasing uh, balloons and on the one hand, and they were chasing 
hypothetical flying saucers, on the other hand, and wanting to tamp that down because, because they'd been told to by the CIA for actually rather good reasons, which is a long story in and of itself, and I doubt that we have time for it. But, uh, but I got that straight from their Pentagon monitor, Dewey Fournay, and uh, they were absolutely terrified back in the Red Scare days. So um, in any case, there was a long pause. And then when I reached the I don't give a damn phase of my OTO membership, uh, the second book got published. Uh, but they were, they were separate books. They're still available as separate books from Paranoia Publishing. But uh, Paranoia Publishing and uh, Paranoid uh, approached me about three years ago and said, what about a combined edition of, of called the, the Complete Secret Cipher, the Euphonauts? And I said, oh, it's, I don't know that it will sell very much. You know, it's it's been out there for a long time. Well, it's selling like hotcakes. And it's, you know, it's a lot cheaper than buying separate books. And it basically tells you how to get to the core, to the extent human beings can get to the core of the UFO mystery and a lot of other things. And uh, that, that brings me perfectly to what I want to talk about, the secret, ritual, secret rituals of the men in black. Uh, now, first... Give us um, what are the men in black based on your research and how, how far back do they go? They go back at least to medieval times because there are medieval stories where the men or man in black was uh, thought to be the devil. And the, we're talking about the same time that someone who was a, was a community healer would be burned at the stake as a witch. So, you know, consider the, 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 the times in which these stories emerge. Nevertheless, when you strip it down to the bare bones of the story, the story of the men in black or the man in black in the Middle Ages is the same core story as you get from uh, the typical story and actually the archetypical story is that of Albert K. Bender, who, uh, it turns out, I believe I was the one to realize this, although probably Gray Barker knew it at the time he wrote, they knew too much about the flying saucers. Um, he was a ceremonial magician in the 1950s. Believe me, sir, that was rare. That was very, very rare. Uh, when I got involved to get books, I had to, Living in Atlanta, I had to get my books from Haslam's Bookstore in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Samuel Weiser in New York, or I didn't get them. You asked about the occult, they gave you locally, the local bookstores would give you a book on astrology. I mean, they just, that was it, you know, that was their, their radical fringe. So um, it was uh, rarer than hen's teeth, as we used to say. And... Uh, Bender started the first private UFO organization, but he was interested. He had eclectic interests for a person of his time. Uh, he had very eclectic interests. He was a science fiction fan. 
he was, uh, and that was incorporated into his magazine, even though it was nominally a flying saucer publication. Um, he, uh, in his personal life, he certainly incorporated the occult. I didn't fully realize that until I saw an obscure picture of his chamber of horrors, as he called it, uh, uh, somewhat facetiously. But there's an altar there, a magical altar. So it's clear that the, he summoned the men in black. They came to him and they were more, the three men in black as they were done then, more than he had bargained for. But they gave him a talisman that had a name, a calling name, which works in the cipher. The name is pronounced Kaik, but it's spelled K-A-Z-I-K. I don't know why he knows how it was spelled, if it was just verbal, but they gave him this disc and said, press this disc and say the word anytime you want to be in touch with us and turn your radio between stations, which is a little bit like one of the uh, occult methods that's being used for uh, communicating with otherware. Um, so, um, Bender may have been a victim of this CIA program, but my guess is he conjured these beings up and got more than he bargained for, which in 1952-53, I expect that he would have, and got completely out of the field, but not without uh, telling other people. He was a World War II vet. He uh, was alive until about two years ago uh, and had moved to the West Coast from where I think he was from Bridgeport, Connecticut, if memory serves, and uh, uh, got Gray Barker, his only best-selling book. Gray was a very close friend of mine and I think probably the person most on top of the Mothman, original Mothman stories. is a whole new set now. Um, and uh, he became uh, involved with uh, the uh, orchestra in Los Angeles and became a, was known for that. Uh, his obituaries don't even mention his encounter with the men in black and his founding the first flying saucer organization. Al Bender was known as a, a vet, and rightly so. We are losing those all too quickly. Um, and uh, as a patron of the uh, Philharmonic Orchestra in, in the town that he lived in, which I didn't know until I read the obituaries uh, and uh, the tributes that local people had. He, he was just, he lived a, a different life altogether after that. And that's not unusual in the occult field. People will get in too deep and are too deep for them, ill-prepared, not having you know done meditation and protective stuff that they need to do and perhaps as uh, israel regarding recommended 300 hours of psychotherapy minimum uh and they freak and if they freak and walk away it's the same thing as people that get disillusioned and walk away which i think is the great the greatest crime of the uh, the major occult organizations they're top heavy and that tends to work bad. Works bad in countries, works bad in organizations, especially if their aspiration is towards um, enlightenment. 
now, how do you think these these men in black entities are connected to modern day men in black encounters like the 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 guys with the suits and look like they're some from some three letter agency yeah i think that what happens in a lot of these things um one of my favorite expressions is i say there are no hoaxes and i base that on the fact that i think reality is far more malleable, pliable, lasting than we like to think that it is. We like to think that the floor under our feet is firm and the world we live in is a you know, solid place. It's a passing shadow in the night. And it's more like the, uh, the world of the matrix than it is like uh, the real world, as it says in the, in the, the original film. Um, I think there are two, two fundamental things going on with the men in black. One is the original, which I sort of mentioned. That is cases like Bender's, where they're invoked or someone who is a, uh, a UFO witness, maybe a uh, close encounter to witness or even a significant light in the sky appearance will then have a visit from something that the shorthand is men in black. They don't always wear black. They're not always three. Sometimes it's one. Uh, Keel has a case that he documented in, uh, in New Jersey that uh, was one guy who they nicknamed Tiny because he was this hugely oversized guy, not that I have any right to talk, uh, and uh, uh, who apparently had uh, was not a real human being. He was... When he walked out the door, they quickly opened the door to see what kind of car he had. He had no car, and he disappeared in front of them. So um, I think you have the original phenomena is these are beings that intentionally or otherwise have been invoked, and they manifest. And then you have the government copies, uh, the disinformation people that, for whatever reason, and I'll be glad to give you what I think is, is the original reason. I have no idea what they're telling themselves now. Um, but there are less cases now of that particular variety. More moth men, less men in black. For it was more men in black, less moth men. So I don't think, uh, you know, CIA ad agents are putting on wings and flapping around and scaring people with glowing red eyes. I think they're a, you know, a an anomalous phenomena in and of themselves. Um, I think there were enough spontaneous cases of these beings in dark clothing, let's use that as a generic term, that somewhere in the bowels of government agencies, they decided, look, this can cause us all sorts of rumor problems and uh, misidentifications and paranoia in society. In short, the world we live in now. <laughs> so let's, let's preempt this by doing some really, really silly stuff. Let's dress up in black outfits and go uh, read, keep up with where there's been a UFO event or whatever, and we'll go to their house and we'll scare the bejesus out of them. Then we'll drive off in our big black Cadillac and we're right there in the legend. There was the uh, 
there was the X-Files episode that got very close to what I think the truth of that kind of case is, where Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek were the two men in black because the witness said, well, one of them looked like Jesse Ventura and the other one looked like Alex Trebek. And it was actually played by Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek. It was one of their more hilarious episodes. Yeah, they, they, they definitely had a sense of humor, rumor, and reality. So, Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable explanation there. Now, uh, for the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk, uh, we mentioned it a few times about Hellier. I thought it was it, it really one of the best docuseries that I've ever seen. Uh, some of the um, synchronicities, the, the trails that they follow, I've never seen anything like it, and I've never seen the twists and turns that this investigation has taken. Now, uh, I'd like you to talk about the importance of synchronicities whenever it comes to exploring occult and ufology and events like these because i've noticed since in my own life since i started exploring this phenomenon synchronicities have exponentially increased and you know i notice them all the time now uh so talk a little bit about that and uh you know what are synchronicities Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, let me back up and say something about Hellier specifically. Um, they follow the synchronicities that occur along the way, along the path, the road. And they will make, if the synchronicity points them to the left, they'll go left. If the synchronicity points them to the right, they'll go right. If the synchronicity says stay in place, they stay in place. In other words, they follow the phenomenon. I think magical initiation attempts to reproduce that under comparatively controlled conditions where there are surprises. For example, in the Masonic third degree, there's a point at which uh, traditionally, I don't know if they're still doing this, but traditionally uh, they pretend that the initiation is over and everybody congratulates the candidate, and then suddenly he's accosted by three ruffians who push him over backwards, but meanwhile the other members of the, initiated members of the lodge are behind him with a blanket and catch him, but he feels like he's falling to the floor. And it's that gotcha moment, the zen moment of the whole thing that is supposed to propel you to a higher level or you know whatever the the design is that's the principle involved in all initiations that work which is crisis and resolution the baby is born the birth is difficult but once the baby is born you have a new life in the world that's that's the the oldest initiation we know of um 
and I was going somewhere with that, but I just had a senior moment. Da, 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 da. We're talking about synchronicities and, and Hellier. Okay, Hellier is the first thing I've seen in the television universe. There are all these programs on the histrionic channel and on the silence, I mean science channel and other channels that are, I've been on a good number of those programs. Of course, I said something in print about them and I haven't been invited back for some odd reason, I don't know. But uh, I remember um, I have a son that's uh, a screenwriter, which is, this is a tough year for screenwriters because there are no movies being made. Uh, uh, they were two days from production on his current movie and uh, it still hasn't happened, but the writer gets paid in advance. Oops, I'm, I'm not going to mention his name because the IRS might be, that's forbidden knowledge. Um, so he, uh, for a while, as screenwriters will, he lived in Hollywood, then he lived in New York for a while. Uh, and I was called to New York by, what's it called? Brad Meltzer's Decoded. Now they were paying for this, you know, so they paid for my trip, paid for my hotel, paid me some little stipend and told me to come out to Liberty Island where they were going to ask me about the secret Masonic basis of the um, Statue of Liberty. And I thought, okay, it's a decent subject. Let's, let's go with it. I think it's their first or their second episode of this program, so I will try to do well by it. It was so rehearsed, so selective, and they interviewed me for maybe an hour, hour and a half, I don't know, these three people who were new at it, in, in fairness, and they got around, I think, to the, to the question that they wanted me to answer in a certain way. They said, well, if, if this was built by Masons and it's a Masonic statue, should it be torn down? And I said, no, absolutely not. Read Emma Lazarus's poem on the base of this. Generations of people, including my ancestors, came over here and saw this as a beacon of liberty. I don't care what the people who designed it meant for it to be, whether it's a statue of a goddess or whatever. It represents the ideals of freedom now. And I went on and I thought, I'm so eloquent. I sound like I'm a flag waver, which I'm not, but it just, you know, I, I, I could hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic playing in the background as I was, and they cut that out, and they cut from my interview to a guy who said, yeah, tear it down, some angry New York conspiracy theorist, and I thought, yeah, and then we concluded the interview, so I was ready to leave, next ferry out, they said, uh-uh-uh, you've got to greet us. I said, pardon, I've already met you. You're nice people. I, uh, give me my $50 or whatever it was. I got, got to go uh, see my son and daughter-in-law. So, uh, no, when the ferry comes in, here's your mark. My mark? When did I become a member of AFTRA SAG? You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm not an actor. Okay, you'll walk from the, from the boat as if you're getting off, you'll go to your mark, you'll see the crew, and then you'll go up to them and go, ah, and I thought, am I going to do this? I feel raped. 
and that's the right term. Am I going to do it? Sure, I'll do it. They'll probably never run this on the show. They did. <laughs> and they're all like that. One time UFO hunters took me out. I'm going the long way around, but trust me on this. UFO hunters took me out in the middle of Utah. And again, they treated me really, really nicely. Uh, um, but they go out to somewhere out in the desert, and I'm supposed to hand the, the three people, Lincoln, Lincoln, and Buckley, or whatever their names are, uh, these photos. And they're just sheets of paper, and they're supposed to look at the photos. So we're out in the middle, and I see these two vans drive up, and the drivers get out of them, and the crew is across the street. And I said, okay, what do I do? They said, well, what we want you to do is to drive up to the, uh, to the crew, get out of the van, shake hands, introduce yourself, which I already, you know, we had been at the same, we were in the same hotel for two days, so we're eating dinner together. Introduce yourself to the crew and show them the pictures. And I said, uh, there's two problems with that. Number one, I don't have a driver's license. Number two, that's because I don't drive. Conference time. So I'm standing there. Does this sound as ridiculous as it is? I'm standing there thinking, what are they going to tell me to do? So I volunteered. I said, you know, I do know how to turn a car on. I could get in, turn it on, and turn it off, and get out, and walk up to them, and pretend that we're just meeting. And that's what we did, folks. That's what we did. It's still probably on YouTube somewhere. So, you know, if you ever see it, well, Hellier broke the mold. Okay, you've got a lot of people who do these little, but they miss the point. I have done many real, real time field investigations of UFO, of ghost phenomena, of this whole range of things. Uh, I've never seen Bigfoot, but I'm in the I'm in the league, and I know what it's like. And I know sometimes it rains on you, and sometimes nothing happens, and sometimes this, and sometimes that. Hellier's the real deal. This is the way field investigations go. If you have a good team of investigators, not the ones that go, "Well, we're not getting what we expected. We're going home." No, they follow the synchronicities and it takes them in all these unexpected directions and you begin to realize hey this is this is real life this is I, i'm sure they cut out some of the boring stuff but the production values everyone says even their critics are outstanding i can't believe they're working with you know handheld equipment and these people are give me hope for the future of, of, of research because they're open to almost anything. And it seems like uh, the secret chiefs or whatever are throwing anything at them, you know, whether it's balloons that say happy birthday or, I mean, there was the one that I thought, I, I seem to be involved in this because they were interviewed me for a great, and I said, you know, you need to regard those balloons more seriously because they're saying happy, bir they're happy birthday balloons, which you're not likely to find out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they're saying, here's the gift. Look around for the gift. And they go, they're polite, very polite people. 
So I, uh, they didn't say anything back to me, but they leave Atlanta and on the spur of the moment, I guess, they decide to go to this little town in Kentucky that I don't recall what the name of the town is, and it probably doesn't matter, but it's got a lot of occult, weird, weird stuff in it. But I think I said to them before they left, if you don't pay attention to the signs, there will be a barrier in your path. I mean, anybody who you know has access to, to Hellier, which is on YouTube, and I think it's still up on uh, Amazon uh, Prime. Um, I said that as a throwaway comment and also as an admonition, you know, that uh, I think that uh, you need to take these seriously. Turns out they thought it was kind of boring or something until they ran into a tree across their road, a barrier, and at the base of the tree was another balloon, and it was a blue star balloon, and we had been talking about Sirius, the largest blue star in the sky, in fact, the largest star in the sky, uh, from, you know, appearance from Earth, and unknown to them at the time, uh, was that one of my publishers is Blue Star Press. Not the ones that the Paranoia Press does uh, Secret Cipher, but Blue Star Press does uh, my current uh, not as popular. God never does the same thing twice because apparently it's taken as a religion book, which is not exactly what it is. It's more metaphorical. Uh, but... Um, that's a quote from an 18th century rabbi that I used as the title. I think of retitling it, Crazy Stuff. It'll sell a million. Crazy Stuff by Alan Greenfield. Yeah, Greenfield's good at the crazy stuff. Yeah, okay. But uh, uh, so it's a blue star balloon, blue star in the, in the in, it, uh, uh, press is my publisher. And they're talking about that in the car, the whole you know, the whole thing, including how annoyed they were with me to keep mentioning balloons. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I don't think he would mind my saying this, but my current publisher of Secret Cipher uh, is seeing balloons in remote areas, same kind of balloons, uh, these mylar helium balloons that you might see one on a city street that got away from a kid or whatever, but how likely is it that you're going to have multiple instances of seeing these helium and, you know, UFOs are often described as being weightless and sometimes uh, abductees say when they turn the beam on me or I'm being drawn up, which is exactly what helium balloons do. So just saying, they're in the zone. And what you're experiencing is the insight I had was since they're doing a good faith investigation and doing it well, it itself is a ritual. And if you are watching it, and I got this idea from my friend in England, Amadali, who is a uh, trance dancer and who says, my dances, if you watch them, you become a co-participant in the ritual. And I thought, yeah, what else does this apply to? And 
failure is it because I keep getting reports from people, including myself. I don't want, I don't like to include myself in the story. If I had a really, really abduction experience or anything, I'd probably, I'd probably leave it in my diary, but I wouldn't say it in my lifetime because that, uh, that becomes questionable for someone who's been an investigator for 50, 60 years, however long it's been. Long, strange trip it's been. Um, I don't want to inject myself into the story the way good journalists don't want to inject themselves into stories that they're covering, which is sometimes very hard to do. Um, and I have, by the way, I have not had any such experience. I've had a couple of ghostly encounters of the minimal kind, and that's, that's about it. Um, so I think that what you're experiencing and what probably a lot of your, should I say watchers or listeners? Both. <laughs> a lot of your watchers, but very few of your listeners. <laughs> no, a lot of your listeners, but very few of but everyone who has read my book, The Complete Secret Life for the Euphonauts, but, 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 is going to have these, exp- no, I can't say that. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. If you watch Hellier all the way through, and you really need to do it that way. You need to binge watch it if you haven't, didn't see it in sequence. Season one, then season two, all the way through. You can do that in two days, two nights whatever, skip work, can't go to work anyway, it's pandemic out there, um, you will probably experience a surplus of synchronicities. And I've only had that happen one, in one other arena in my life. I have synchronicities. Everybody does. And some people, they're rare enough, they'll write them all, off as coincidences, which, by the way, I don't think there is any such thing. I think there are. I think synchronicities are a clue to the type of universe or universes that I was talking about earlier. Um, but my feeling is that anybody that experiences these synchronicities repeatedly is part of the phenomenon. And if you go with that, you become part of hellier. Very well said. I mean, would, would you think it's fair to say that if you're on a certain path and you're experiencing a number of synchronicities, that it's a way of the universe telling you you're on the right path? Yep, exactly that. Uh, the way I expressed it was to use the magical terminology, which doesn't, isn't the be-all and end-all, but it will do. The secret chiefs are guiding you. That doesn't mean... Bill, the guy who told me that the occult is more important than, than grits on a hot summer day. Uh, whatever, whatever his point was. Uh, yeah, it's more respectable than flying saucers, uh, something that I thought was ridiculous at the time and still think. Um, yeah, I mean, I pretty well, that pretty well nails it. Very good. Alan, thank you so much. That was awesome information, and we barely even scratched the surface. So I'm definitely going to have to have you back on soon. Hey, as long as I'm sitting up here with very little to do other than after midnight, I go out and ride my bicycle so that 
people in the lobby don't say, Oh, it's the bicycle guy. Let's go talk to the bicycle guy. So. Awesome. All right, Alan, you have Bye. a wonderful night. Thank you so much again. And uh, before you head out, uh, if people are interested in reading Secret Cipher and uh, in any of your other books, what's the best place to find them? The best thing to do is either to, to buy it directly from Paranoia Publishing, which you can Google their address. There's also a secret cipher decoder. There's a book coming that helps with decoding the cipher. And if you want me, let me spell my name, because if you spell it, I've been on the Internet since it was the ARPANET. So there are many, 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 many entries, including my uh, recently refurbished, uh, excellent, uh, old-fashioned website. Uh, just Google the name, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, Greenfield, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, and follow the signs. Most of them are nice. Some of them are mean and wrong. <laughs> uh, by the way, the Facebook link won't work because I have been one of many people who has been chopped from the block of Facebook for reasons unknown. However, I don't blame anybody because I don't think there's anybody of the humankind at home. And I don't mean that in any alien way. I mean, it's all being done by machine. I put in the wrong password and I'm blocked for life. Oh, I know that's happened to quite a few people I know. Uh, yeah, lately, especially because it's trouble. So we're running overtime. You have that overtime host look. So thank you for having me. And I'll be glad to be back on uh, anytime you really need me and I'm still alive. Definitely. And all right, Ellen. On the radio thing, the spirit box. <laughs> awesome. Alan, thank you again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Have a good night. You too. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.